Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The End of Sport, a podcast on capitalist sport, labor, and harm in sporting culture with your hosts, Johanna Mellis, Nathan Kalman-Lamb, and Derek Silva. If you're enjoying the show, please reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or check out our website at www.theendofsport.com, where you can find details on how to support the show via Patreon. With that said, we hope you enjoyed this episode of The End of Sport. Absolutely. Well, we are certainly inclined to agree with you about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised to hear. Um, now, you know, I'd actually like to shift now a little bit because this, this has been a terrific discussion and, and so compelling in a lot of ways. And I want to make sure we kind of get everything in that I, I think is most essential to touch on. Um, sure. So you recently co-authored a piece for Tropics of Meta um, about how race norming is built into the 2015 NFL concussion settlement. Yeah. You wrote, and I quote here, black men in the case are assumed to start with a lower level of cognitive functioning than their white counterparts. And as a result, if a black and white player receive the same score, the black athlete is assumed to have less impairment. End yeah. quote. I mean, that is a stunning and beyond damning statement. Yeah. Can you explain what race norming in medicine is and how it operates specifically in the context of the concussion settlement? Sure. Yeah. And I really appreciate um, you're asking me this question because I have to say that I sent that op-ed to, um, I, I don't even know, just uh, um, more than a dozen newspapers and nobody wanted to print it. Nobody was interested in it. And then thankfully, uh, Stan Thangaraj, uh, worked, had worked with Tropics of Meta and introduced me to Tropics of Meta and they, and they took it. Um, but I was profoundly discouraged that something, um, as, as da- like you say, as damning was, was of no interest to mainstream media. I mean, I went all to all of the, um, you know, the, the, the usual suspects and just kept getting zero, zero interest. Um, and I think that this is, a, this is a really, this is a really scary, um, uh, aspect, um, of American football and, and, and of the ways in which we compensate workers, um, and we keep workers healthy um, so, so let me start from the beginning. So, so race correction—it's—it's um, it's called race correction in some parts of medicine. It's called race norming in others, and it's—it's—it almost is unbelievable when when I'm going to say what 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 it is, which is it's the adjustment of values or scores by perceptions of racial difference. So, it's done in two ways. The first one is that someone who a physician identifies as as black their score is adjusted either downward or upward um based upon that perception of racial difference so they might lose points or they might gain points depending on where the threshold is and i, I can explain that in in one second the second way is that two different population standards are used for people who are perceived as black and people who are perceived as white rather than one standard for, for all. And I, 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 so I came across somebody who is, who is working with the settlement 
in August and realized that this was race, that there was race correction in August. And then COVID complicated my interviewing her, but, but she had basically, she had basically alluded to the fact that there were proxies that, that were being used for race and that there, that there was tinkering with raw scores in neurocognitive testing that I think she, she didn't immediately see it as disadvantaging uh, Black players, but did, did sort of come to see that. Um, so race correction, to sort of go back to where it is in medicine, it's widespread. So it's in cardiology, nephrology, obstetrics, urology, pulmonology, oncology, and endocrinology. It can affect organ donation. It can affect chemotherapy treatment. And, and basically what it does is it, it penalizes somebody um, who a, ph- a physician sees um, as, as, as Black. So in pulmonology, there's, there's the, the, the way to measure lung function um, is, is a spirometer. And the spirometer will take points away from somebody's score, uh, from somebody, the score of the spirometer they have to actually input what the race is uh, before the spirometer um, is activated. And then points are taken away, which means that they have a lower, they're assumed, uh, black patients are assumed to have a lower baseline. They're assumed to have less lung function. So that when it comes to compensation cases and you're showing a difference in cognitive, in cognitive impairment, they often don't qualify. And what happened in the case of, of, of the concussion settlement is that race norming takes this raw score, right? Everybody takes the same test, neuropsychological test, and then it adjusts these raw scores by race and then by a, by a, a few other variables that I, that I also think are, are not as egregious, but still um, wildly discriminatory. So um, some of them, we, I mean, we don't know exactly what they are because the, the settlement is we're not allowed to see that, although hopefully with litigation we will. Um, but neighborhood um, level of education, um, which which can be proxies, not not always are, but but can be proxies. And so what what happened in this case is that there were um, two plaintiffs who 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 took who took the test, qualified for um, for compensation. And um, and then and then the NFL said said no, these have not been race normed, so they're they have not had points taken away because they are considered black, and that once those points were taken away, those retired players no longer met the threshold for compensation, and it's it's absolutely unbelievable to think that um, that, that 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 this is possible. Um, and, and in fact, when I, when I was writing the op-ed, I was sending it to friends and they didn't believe me. I mean, it was so unbelievable. Um, but it's, it's, it's standard in, in, in medicine. Um, I work in a, in a, in a side job. I work, uh, with gold miners, um, pol- political work. I work with gold miners, black gold miners in South Africa who have, um, lung diseases and there's a there's a massive class action suit there, and there's a big fight not to race correct in in the examinations. Uh, there's a lot of um, of pushback 
by doctors and and by well I, I should say also by well-meaning individuals. So um, I was reading a paper recently that was looking at the relationship between literacy and dementia and was looking at a, 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 a quote unquote black cohort, a quote unquote white cohort. And basically what the argument was that you, you can't use the same standards for those two cohorts um, because, because black um, men and women who have not had access to reading and writing start at a lower level of cognitive ability by virtue of that. And this person raised Jim Crow, Jim Crow South. What were the educational opportunities? I mean, to me, to very cynical ends, um, you know, this is not, this is not an anti-racist argument. Um, this is, this is racial science. Um, but it, it, it'll be really interesting to see what happens in, in, in the NFL. I think that um, it was a real bombshell when, when that was, when that was, when that, um, when the, the legal case to challenge the, the use of race correction in, in the concussion settlement came about, but I've, I've interviewed lawyers since then and it was agreed to the, the plaintiff's lawyers in that case agreed to race correction. So it's really up to the judge to decide whether she wants to go back and, um, and, and reconsider the place of race correction uh, or the use of race correction. She may not. It might get to, it's totally possible that that case will get dismissed on procedural grounds rather than substantive ones. Um, there, there have been times in which um, asbestos workers, black asbestos workers have argued against, um, against race norming and have won. Um, so it's not inconceivable, but those um, those asbestos workers. I'm thinking of the ones in Baltimore for um, Owens Owens Corning. I think it was. They they argued this beforehand, so it hadn't already been agreed by a plaintiff's lawyer uh, in the case. Just, I mean, it's it's incredible. I had the exact same reaction as those friends you sent the piece to. Uh, I, I I couldn't believe what I was reading uh, as I was going through your piece. It is. It's 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 truly stunning it's it's the like i don't know it, it, it truly stands in for the larger political economy of football it's just this perfect um yeah. you know kind of representation of just how egregious the racist exploitation is in this sport yeah, um, yeah. and actually i also wanted to highlight your you know, just to circle back on the experience you had with your piece itself, you know, because this is something that we, um, you know, we th we've started thinking about quite a bit, partly because we also are trying to make, um, you know, interventions in, in public discourse via yeah. uh, mainstream media and also are kind of monitoring it and monitor it through Twitter and other places. And I mean, when you start to pay close attention to football specifically, and I don't want to speak more broadly because I've been paying much closer attention to football more recently. Yeah. So that's why that's yeah. on my mind. Um, it's the sports media complex. You yeah. cannot get away from the fact that these media companies are just as invested in 
football as an economic enterprise yeah. as the leagues themselves, right? I mean, yeah. like ESPN can't be divorced from the NFL. They have the yeah. same exact project and anything that harms football that points to exploitation, injustice, harm in football, it hurts the bottom line at ESPN yeah. and almost all of these other um, companies that cover the sport and college football and whatever else. And so, you know, what you wrote, it's, it's amazing because I, I know because I shared your work on Twitter. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I'd appreciate you know, that. <laughs> it's no problem. I mean, the reason I did it in part, I mean, it's because it was absolutely necessary for people to read and understand what was happening. And and, and the reason I brought it up is not is because it got a huge reaction, right? Yeah, I mean, like yeah, people yeah. saw it, they yeah. lost their mind in exactly the same way, which tells that the reason I'm bringing that up is it tells you the story was a story. Right? Yeah, like if all the yeah. media cared about was getting clicks, that yeah. was clickbait. Not to say yeah. it was written as clickbait, but you know what I'm saying? It was it was exactly the kind of thing that's gonna draw attention. And yet something else yeah. got in the way for those yeah. companies you sent it to, right? And I think we have to pay attention to that. Yeah, and I and I think that even besides this op-ed, this this case um that is challenging race correction got very little press. Um it in general, I mean, it was it was hard to find stories on it. I, I mean, what I know about it is really from the filing papers, um, and that that was surprising. Even you know, the New York Times ran two pieces, and you know, they 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 tend to be, you know, a, a an outlet that that will talk about the NFL. <laughs> Um, you know whether they're critical enough uh, or not is 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 probably debatable. But the, you know they did run a story, um, and um, and they and they were the only ones. Uh, so there, it, you know, you you an, another outlet you could say, well, they've already, you know, there's no story that's been run. So here's your story. And this is a moment in which Roger Goodell is saying the Black Lives Matter. Right? He is doing everything he can in terms of media presence to say no Black players matter. Um, and their lives matter. Um, and then, it, you know, then the biggest settlement that the NFL has ever had uses race correction. And not only that, but really viciously um, reviews every case to ensure there's been race correction. Because not every physician um, uh, race corrected. And, you know, there, there, there was a, a really careful combing through the um, through the complaints or, or through the, um, the applications for compensation that, that, that required race correction. I, I mean, that to me is, I mean, that's just, that's diabolical on another level. Um, but, you know, I, I, again, this is also something that is present in, um, in, in medicine um, as you, I mean, really common in medicine, and you know, a lot of a lot of the people who um, advocate for race-based medicine will say, "Well, it's not genetically based. What what we want to do is make sure that there is an understanding of uh, social conditions, and that those social conditions are reflected in um, in the in the population standards we use." It's really it's it's. It's 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 just egregious. I mean, the other thing I would say about the moment that I was trying to to publish the piece is that that was the same week as the Wildcat strikes, and I think that it was far more exciting 
to report on something that was unexpected and um, serendipitous than something that showed, no, this is institutional racism um, and that we have to fight it and it's going to be step by step. It was a lot easier to say, well, no, there's wildcat strikes. You know, we can, you know, anything goes. Um, well, yeah, I, look, you're, you're doing the work for us here because the next thing we wanted to get to was, um, was exactly that, the wildcat strikes, as you have written on the role of the athlete activist in the context of the Trumpist United States um, prior, to, um, prior to what we saw this summer. Um, so I would, I would love to hear your reflections on that wave of strikes, how you understand them in the broader history of U.S. athlete activism. And, you know, and this is something you kind of just bring to how significant an impact would you say that they had? What kind yeah. of political potential exists in athlete activism right now, more broadly? Yeah. So, um, of, of, of course, athletes have always protested um, and have always uh, made clear their, their political convictions. You know, that is, uh, is, is historical fact. Um, but I think that what happened this summer um, in terms of scale and scope um, and effect was was unprecedented and to me was extremely exciting. Um, you know, it's like you would you would wake up or I would wake up in the morning and sort of log on and see what's happened. And it's like somebody else, you know, somebody else um, protested, somebody else wore, you know, a mask um, with George Floyd's name, or, you know, there were, there were all these different spaces, um, in which athletes were finding ways to make their con political convictions known. Um, and, you know, Lewis Hamilton was doing it. It wasn't only, um, the U S uh, although, you know, it, it, the protests were about the U S but, but there was, there was solidarity that came from the premier league, uh, again, from, from Lewis Hamilton. Um, and then when they're, you know, and I think, there was a lot of power. There was a lot of muscle that was flexed. I don't know why I can't get rid of all these puns, these sport puns. Um, but I think that they, they, a lot of the protests this summer showed what could happen, you know, what, what could happen. And I, and then there were the wildcat strikes. And I, I took a, I took a course on the history of strikes in, um, in graduate school. Um, and so, you know, I don't know a ton about strikes, but I know some, and, you know, wildcat strikes are like the unicorn of labor unrest. Like you just, you, you, you know, most people have never seen one and you, you know, you wonder if they're ever going to happen again. And then all of a sudden it happened. Um, and for me, that was, was fascinating and exciting. Um, I think that when, um, when Sterling was was ejected as as the owner of of the Clippers, there there was a little bit of a moment there where I thought that that the that the NBA was really going to be able to show their power, and then there was a, there was an easing off of that. Um, but then this was this was um, you know this was all out uh, all out strike. I have to say now that it's it's really crucial that athletes keep up the pressure. And um, I, I'm really hoping that that continues during the Biden-Harris administration. And I, and I hope that, I mean, not just athletes, all of us don't really become comfortable in the fact that Trump's no longer in office um, mm -hmm. because th this is not 
you know, it, this is a it's a continuum. Um, and, you know, Biden might be better on certain things, uh, on a lot of things even, and, and Harris might be better on a lot of things, but we haven't, you know, we haven't changed fundamentally as a society. So I, I do, I do think that it's crucial that, um, that, that everyone keep up the pressure. Um, I also think that there was a moment, there was a, there was a bit of an easing off even before Biden was elected. Mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, you know, some of the people that who were the most vocal also had commercial interests. And I think it's going to take people really being willing. I mean, much like the WNBA was from the beginning, any cost, any cost, any penalty, any not playing a game. I mean, I, I sensed an easing and, and maybe that's, maybe that's cynical of me, but it, it did, there, there are a lot of commercial interests to be, be protected specifically in the, in the, in the NBA, in men's basketball, um, where, where I think a lot of the, the activism emerges from, again, along with the, the WNBA. So I, yeah, I hope that, I hope the pressure um, continues. I think athletes have tremendous power. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I saw that, I think what interested me the most about Kaepernick, and it wasn't Kaepernick per se, but it was that players at every level of play were taking a knee when Kaepernick was taking a knee. Um, And that, I found that so inspiring. I, I mean, I just, and I found it so brave because there were youth football teams that were getting death threats. I mean, there was a little, little guys, um, who, who just wanted to play football and want to take a knee to, you know, to, to express their own emerging political convictions. And they were getting, you know, they were, they were, they were being absolutely um, chased down with racial terror. Um, so I think, you know, that's Kaepernick and he did one thing and he affected cheerleaders and bands and, um, and, you know, again, youth leagues, uh, high school leagues, the co- college players. Um, there's, there's a tremendous amount to tap into, um, not just in terms of, um, of, of shaping what the problems are, but shaping what the, the solutions are and what more just futures look like. Um, so I, 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 I'm, I'm hopeful. I think that's what I can say. I'm hopeful. Yeah. And, you know, I'd be, we would definitely agree with you on many, many of your points, such as, you know, the fact that athletes do have all this power and they're not only like athletes at the elite level, but as you're saying, like athletes at many different levels. Um, and, and then also your point about sort of continuities, right, is that the these issues are part of our culture and our society. And it's not just going to change just because of a, you know, changing of the political guard, yeah. um, especially not someone like, you know, Biden, but, um, you know, it's going to take a lot more. Um, yeah. so I, I really, really appreciate that you highlighted, uh, this points. Um, and, and to sort of segue a little bit into sort of sport, uh, scholarship in the Academy. Um, now you've written about this before, but we would love to hear kind of more about what are your thoughts about, um, how you think, or I guess to what extent you think that academic work on sport is re- well-received within higher education. 
and sort of what barriers do you think exist for this work to be sort of embraced wholeheartedly and sort of why does it even matter right now? Yeah. Um, so I think the piece that you're, you're referring to was uh, a piece that I wrote in uh, the American Studies Journal in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really a response uh, to uh, a, a presidential address of the American Studies Association um, in which uh, people who studied sports were sort of disparaged as, you know, old, old white men or boys who, you know, just... Uh, wanted to play or watch baseball. I can't remember exactly what was said, but it was something disparaging about, you know, real critical inquiry. Um, and uh, you, you, what I wanted to point out, and what which I I, I stand by, I, w- I would still point out, is that one of the things that's exciting about sports studies and about scholarship on sport is the way that it crosses methodologies, it crosses, um, you know, content areas. It, theoretical formations. Um, and I've learned so much from, um, from, from people writing about sport who I, I never would have met. I would have never even known, um, you know, people in performance studies and actually thinking of Harvey Young, who, um, has written on, um, on, on boxing stillness and boxing in a, in a way that I just, it, it completely blew my mind. Um, and, uh, and and his 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 subsequent work has just been absolutely phenomenal. So I really like that um, that that there there hasn't been a policing of disciplinary boundaries. Um, and American Studies has been a place, really, thanks to Noah Cohen um, for starting a caucus um, and getting getting people who are interested in. Um, in this, in the sport in, in, and in studying sport and talking about sport and writing about sport together. Uh, and I think, I can't remember, I, th- I think we're one of the largest caucuses in the, in the American Studies Association. I, I don't, after I wrote that piece, uh, I, I, I got a lot of, I got a lot of pushback. Um, and a lot of people said, no, we're not respected. And, um, you know, this is, this is all fine and good. Um, and that there are, there is great work being done, but you know, we're not getting top jobs. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I respect, and I always want to hear people's perspectives on my work. I didn't find it particularly persuasive that if you study sport you won't get a job at Yale or not to say, not, not, I guess that's, I'm not saying it right. I don't, I don't find that a reason not to study sport. And if that's, if Yale is sort of your, is, is what you want. I, I can't feel a lot of um, empathy for not getting a job at, at Yale um, because you study sport. And what I said to the people who would sort of push back and say, well, we're not respected. And I say, you're a tenured professor. You know, you're you're at University of Maryland. You're at you know, um, you know whatever whatever school. <laughs> Try not to name the schools that <laughs> so people can be identified so closely. I mean, these are these are my peers. These are people I adore. Um, but I just said I I I I refuse to believe that there's zero respect because you, here you are writing about sport and you have a job. You have a tenured job, and 
and and that is you know in the academy that is so rare that that that's not the that's not the contingent that I found was making a real evidence based argument. Um, I do think that people need to learn um, how to read works that connect sports to larger to to other social institutions. I don't think that that is necessarily. Um, clear to people. And so I do think that that is incumbent upon us to, um, to, to articulate for, for readers, how our work on sport shows us something else about, um, you know, lived experience about racial capitalism, about, um, uh, gender formations, you know, whatever it might be. I I do think that we need to do the hard work to to articulate those connections. Um, And I I really do feel that over time there, 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 there is, there is more respect um, for, for sport. I mean, the people who I, yeah, I think that, I think that with, you know, with, with really explaining and doing the hard analysis of connecting whatever sporting phenomenon we're studying with larger structures, that, that, that sport does have a, sports studies does have a place in academia. I mean, I think if, if we are talking about, there are, you know, there is some work, sociology of sports one of, is one of the places. The studies are so specific and minute and it's like how, I don't know, pitching at this angle is going to, you're not going to persuade people that that tells us something about society unless you articulate that, right? Those tiny micro studies, that's, that's not what's going to be persuasive to people. It's really doing the hard work of linking. Why, why, does, why does Jack Johnson's um, tours um, overseas tell, tell us something important about the color line like Teresa Runstetler's done? Um, so I think, I think the work is there. I think that articulation is, is happening, um, but that it's also, it's also really on us as scholars. Um, I mean, I, I wonder what, to what extent people who study music also feel this mm-hmm. um, and that it's complicated when you, when maybe you love your, your, what you study um, and that, that the lines between, you know, what we consider journalism and um, quote unquote academic work can be blurred. I don't think that's a bad thing, um, but I guess with more sort of old school um, understandings of knowledge production, people might not consider that academic work. Um, but I, you know, I, in terms of in terms of my own experience, I mean, I I worked with a phenomenal editor who was excited about my project from the beginning, um, and 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 I, you know, honestly, my my. My journey started in 2000, 2001, when I began working with my advisor who, you know, said, I, I hear that you're working in a boxing gym. Are you interested in sport? And I was like, well, I don't know. Like, we'll see how things go. And, and he was like, okay, let's do some independent studies. And, um, you know, th- those, so, those tutorials that I did for 
I don't know, three or four years were, were really the most rigorous work I think I've ever done um, and, and took sport as an object of study in, incredibly seriously. Yeah, and, and um, um, thank you so much for such a really nuanced answer. And it's something that, I mean, I'm sure Nathan has thoughts. I'm sure a, a lot of people have thoughts. It's something that I've, I've really gone sort of back and forth about. So for context, I'm a historian of sport, and mm-hmm. I, study, I study sport in the Cold War, specifically in Eastern Europe, which is a niche topic and is something that I've had to sort of figure out how do I relate this to sort of international trends, but also how do I make it relevant to kind of the present day so that people may actually have an interest in it. And it's yeah. something that through the podcast and through other things that I sort of figured out how to do, but certainly there was like no discussion of sort of like, this is how you might do that. And grad school was more like figure it out, um, which, yeah. you know, I think that's how most people, I think that's how it is for most people. And it, it's so interesting. So when I picked my topic, cause I was already studying Eastern Europe, I'd already started learning Hungarian. And so I was already like fixed on sort of my region and my country, Um, and my, my advisor basically like she knew I was an athlete, I was a D one swimmer. And she basically said, you know, like my, she was on a book prize for the Eastern European Eurasian history organization. And, and they had just awarded this major prize to a sport historian who wrote like a soccer history in in the Soviet union. Mm. And she, and she said like, you can pursue a sport topic. Because I, I think you might have a chance of getting a job because this book just won a major award in our field. And, mm. and, and this book is excellent work. Like not only did it win an award, but like it is excellent work. And so I think that helps like convince her that this kind of study can be really rigorous and that it isn't just like listing stats or kind of whatever. Right. Um, and, and like stats, you know, for certain subjects are absolutely important, but it's obviously about much, much more than that. Um, but I think like from a history perspective, I was super lucky to have someone who was supportive and yeah. other people in my, in my program were too. Um, but I have heard like comments from like well-meaning friends at, at multiple, at multiple schools and multiple different history departments who have said, oh, you know, have you, do you know of so-and-so who's, I don't know, a historian of sport, but in a different context and sort of region that I do. And they're like, oh yeah. And they'll be like, oh yeah, we interviewed for for X job, but we were afraid that they would only be able to teach sport classes. Yeah. And I, at the, at the time I, I didn't really know how to respond because I was kind of so like frustrated because I'm like, if you study sport, you have to, like, of course it's connected to gender. It's of course it's connected to American history or global history or like whatever you do. And this is for any discipline, right? Like sports studies is so interdisciplinary and and that's what your work shows and like my work and Nathan and Derek's work and like our colleagues work, right? Is that it speaks to many different things because sports are so like embedded in our culture. Yeah. Like you're, you're not doing good work if you're not connecting it, as you yeah. said. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, I also think that, that just that argument is really wrongheaded about somebody who can only teach sport because sport and society was the first class that I took in college. And mm. um, classes on sport fill seats. Mm-hmm. And so from a really basic if we want the humanities or the the humanistically grounded social sciences to survive, yeah, this fills lecture halls, um, and uh, I, I I've come across that you know that argument the only sport, um, but 
yeah, you don't hear it so much with like, oh, that person can only teach about capitalism. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, 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 it's senselessly disparaging um, and, 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 and inaccurate. Right. And, and sort of what I would, and I, and I definitely agree. And sort of what I would say, like, and again, this is totally like individual experience, but I mean, on the one hand, like who's getting a job right now in this, yeah. area, this climate is, is one whole issue. Um, but also I just, like, I know, for example, like, I, I don't know all the reasons why I, my department picked me. I was only hired two years ago, but like, I'm, I guarantee they were thinking about like, this person can teach classes that will get a lot of bodies and seats yes. and this, like this, this could potentially draw people to the major. And it's not just like in a, Oh, look at sport. It's wonderful. We're just going to talk about our heroes and all this stuff. Like th they knew from my own work and you know, that they had a better understanding of sport studies. I think that's part of it too, is still doing the work to convince people sort of in and outside of our field that, you know, we, what we do matters and really yeah. impacts people's lives right now, which I think people are understanding more and yeah. more. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. That's a really good yeah. point. And then if and we can, if we can sort of teach our, our students, if we can teach our athletes how to be more, how to approach what they do with a more critical eye, it's something that benefits literally everybody. everybody. Com completely. No, I, I, I completely agree. And I think that it's possible, um, you know, it started with Kaepernick, but I, I think it's possible that, that, that what we saw this summer will do a lot of that work for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that, that it just, it, it, that, that what, what athletes illuminated on this, you know, national scale was the way that sport connects with other social institutions and is, and is intertwined and, and entangled with other social institutions. Mm -hmm. Totally. And, and I think like just one of the, one of the problems is, is just this lingering notion in the academy broadly that, you know, that sports are just like not an intellectual pursuit. Um, yeah. And it gets, what, what's bizarre about that. The only reason I'm highlighting that is it's bizarre because what you've both pointed out is that in this moment of crisis in the academy, in terms of like, you know, again, how to excite students, how to get bodies and seats. It's the most popular form of culture in the society. Yeah. It's borne out that students want to pay attention to it. And yet the, a lot of times our institutions just resist, you know, yeah. they resist. forget about, I'm not talking about on the departmental level here, right? Like this isn't back to that earlier question of who is the sociology department going to hire? Are they going to hire someone who's doing work on sport? But I mean, like literally like what major universities that don't have kinesiology departments, sports studies yeah. departments, et cetera. You know, I, I've heard of such universities um, yeah. and, and wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and yet the, the students at these universities are literally coming because they say, we want Ivy plus sports. Yeah. That's literally why we're here. Um, but then they don't even have an opportunity to take classes on sports and they're desperate for it, you know? So yeah. it's, it's a bizarre situation. And it's, it's, it's a fundamental failure of our institutions because it, it misses the fact. You, you were pointing out this issue of how we have to make connections between um, sport and society more broadly. And we do. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. That like really pedantic focus on specific issues of sport. I have no interest in that whatsoever. But it's not difficult to make those yeah. connections in some yeah. ways because yeah. sport does play such an instrumental role. I mean, like the pandemic is, it's not changing things, but it's making that so abundantly clear. Like we literally are having a conversation every week about athletes, essential workers. Yeah. That conversation doesn't make sense. Sport yeah. doesn't have a pretty darn critical role in our society. 
you know, yeah. but it's like we just, there's just a steadfast refusal, I feel like, to acknowledge that within the academy, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's, I mean, I wonder how, uh, you know, I, I, I probably blame everything on baby boomers. I mean, I wonder how much <laughs> um, of, of, of that will change um, with, with the retirement of that group um, and with a slightly younger cohort of academics who have really seen um, the, the power of sport like up close and, 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 and personally. I mean, I think that there are people that, that have, who are in academia who have gotten away with like not engaging sport. Yes. Um, and I, and I, I think among a, a younger cohort that, that, that becomes harder to do. Yeah, totally. Well, let's, let's, let's finish. This has been a wonderful conversation. Um, and there was so much more we could talk about, but I think that you, um, you've made so many connections along the way that that kind of covered a lot of the ground that we wanted to beautifully. Um, but you, you say up close and personal with sport. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, we, we love to finish with this anyway, but you yourself, I understand were an athlete, uh, in, in college, if I have that correct. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Yep. Um, I was, I was a division one, um, 400 and 800 meter runner. Okay. So this is the question then given, given everything you've talked about, how have those experiences informed your scholarship and how has your scholarship affected your relationship with sport? Um, yeah, that is such a great question. Um, so I, I was an athlete. Um, I was a, a 400 and like I said, an 800 meter runner. Um, but I was a really ambivalent athlete. Um, so I was a, a blessed with a, a reasonable amount of talent. Um, I, I was uh, first team all Ivy several times and uh, my four by eight team uh, set a school record, I think in my first or second year. Um, but I was absolutely tortured by anxiety, tortured by anxiety. Um, I found, I just found the experience of competition to be really, truly awful. So I think that some of the experiences that I drew from or some of the some of the the ways in which my experiences have informed my scholarship um, have been in the interests in my interest in ambivalence, uh, my interest in the contradictions of sport. Um, so, you know, how can how can I love training but not love competition? Um, how could I like winning, but not like competing? Um, I think that I really search for um, the places in sport that make me most uneasy. And boxing was one of them um, because I, uh, I, I watched boxing. I was a boxing fan. I followed boxing before I went into the gym, uh, but I felt really complicated about its ra racial uh, and uh, in class politics. It's, it's racial and, class history. Uh, so I think those are the best topics for me personally, or the other ones that I feel ambivalent about that I don't have an answer for, and that, um, that, that warrant sort of further uh, investigation, um, and that, that one I can do by, by talking with athletes. I'd also say that I, I, I grew up um, with teams that, um, that were convivial, um, and that 
had athletes from a real range of backgrounds um, and showed me that social experience involves tolerance, embracing, uh, understanding difference, uh, and showing solidarity. Um, I mean, I had some, I, I was really lucky in the, in the teens that, that I, I ran with both um, in high school and in, and in college. Um, and I think, I think convivia, I, I caught a glimpse of conviviality. And so I, I, I really hold on to that and, and see that as something that sport provides um, moments of joy with your teammates, um, even though we, we had really different material conditions. Um, I think that there is a, is a, is a, a, a similarity in the joy or in the pursuit of, um, you know, whatever one is, is trying to do in, in, in the sport. But I also had an interesting, so I went Brown and, um, I had an interesting experience there, um, in terms of gender. Uh, and that was that, um, our women's, uh, our women's team, uh, was very successful. So, um, the, when I was there, we won the Ivies, the heptagonal championships most years. I don't remember us not winning, but I, I'm sure we didn't. Um, but we, but we, we routinely won the Ivies. Um, and our, our men's team was not as strong. Uh, and so I had this experience where the men's team really was in the supportive role of the women's team. Um, and there was not animosity. There was not, um, I mean, any, any, any animosity that, that I picked up on, uh, and I tend to be sensitive, if not hypersensitive in those types of settings, um, no, and no resentment about our victories. Um, I think because track and field, you know, can be one unit with two teams, there was a lot of pride in our accomplishments. And so I think I also caught this glimpse of um, a world in which, you know, some of some of the outside pressures of patriarchy didn't didn't penetrate, and um, not all, but some some didn't. And uh, I was I rarely go on Facebook, but I was on Facebook recently, and um, I saw uh, a post by somebody who was um, on my team, uh, a long jumper, and um, and and he had posted a picture of three people from the women's team. And, uh, and, and, and I think he was, you know, sort of connecting with those, those women. Uh, and then, and the caption was, it was such an honor to be able to watch these women win. And I just, I, I, I think that, I think that that's significant. Um, there was not, you know, no resentment that it was, they liked watching us win. And some of my harshest critics came from the men's team. Lucy, you know, Lucia, Harry, you know, you're not working hard enough or, you know, you're just going to give up like that, you know, at people who, there was, there was a lot of mutual respect. Um, so I think that those, um, those experiences, you know, inform my scholarship to the, to the extent that I see these moments that matter a lot to me or, or really, really shaped me were, were really important moments. Um, while while also having the experience of uh, of 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 you know dreading every Saturday 
throwing up before races um, and that there is a lot of possibility in holding the two together. Um, you know, the, the, the challenging or the, 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 the difficulties with the possibilities that, that sport holds. Um, my scholarship on my, on my, on my sporting life, <laughs> I should do a lot more. <laughs> I should, I, I, you know, working, working with athletes, uh, you know, you've, I, I feel sort of chronically, um, under, under, under exercised. Uh, I feel like I should, should work harder and, um, and exercise. Uh, but maybe that's, maybe that's a, a positive, even, even if it feels negative. This is coming from someone who literally took up boxing during the <laughs> Yeah, boxing. so I so did. I find it a little bit hard to believe. So I did, but I have to say, um, I, um, I hated it. I, I hated it. And I did it because of peer pressure. And I did it because I felt like if I did not get in the ring and spar, I was going to lose the respect of people in the gym. Um, and that, and the peep that it was a, it was like, you know, in, in ethnography, there's always this moment where you realize I don't want to do this and I have to do it because if not, everything's going to change. And, um, I had a similar moment in, 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 with, with the football team, but I had to get in there um, and I had to do it. I mean, it is a great workout, but I would literally hide behind the heavy bag so that my trainer wouldn't see me. And then he would come over and he'd be like, if you, I'm like, oh yeah, totally. Like five rounds have done them. No problem. When like, I would literally be hiding, hiding. Or I would say, oh, you know, I have a headache and, you know, we can't box when I have a headache and, you know, I'm plagued with migraines and I know it's such a disaster. And I don't really want to do... I don't really want to jump rope because I get shin splints. And I mean, I was the biggest baby um, in that gym. So I did take it up. I did, I did do it. Um, but also complained relentlessly and felt very bad for myself that I had to do it. <laughs> Well, I love that because actually that's like a, it's a different spin on the question of kind of consent and violent sport. <laughs> not, not so much the, the socioeconomic structural factors, but the, you know, the imperative of the ethnography. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I mean, it really did feel like, um, people have, people, people in, in the gym, or at least the gym that I worked in really respected that, that I wanted to learn about boxing um, and said, you know, you listen, you, you ask questions, like you're not too proud to say that you don't know something like you, you like, you like hearing about the sport. And I, and I just felt that it was sort of an embodied extension to, to box, but I was horrible. I mean, I think that my trainer allowed me to hide behind that heavy bag because he really didn't want to work with me because it was just like, I taught you this like five times on Tuesday and it's Thursday and you're doing like the exact wrong thing over and over. <laughs> like you're just, there's absolutely zero progress here and it's wildly frustrating. Well, okay. As the last, last thing, that was supposed to be the last, but as the last, last thing, what was, you got to tell us what the moment was in football. What was the moment <gasps> in your football ethnography? Oh yeah. So in football, um, 
the the first team that I worked with, the first coaching staff, um, someone would um, always kick kick the ball um, to start, and then somebody would catch it. It was a kickoff. Somebody would somebody who was not a player would do the kickoff, and um, I lived in terror of that. Um, I lived in terror of being the person, and everybody would say, "Oh, you're next. You're next. You're next." Um, and, uh, and, and then I, and, and then I, I thought, I, I just, I'm going to have to do this. And I don't, I mean, I am, I'm really uncoordinated. Um, I mean, I can run, but you know, it doesn't take a ton to run. Um, but I, 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 I was not, I, I was positive. I was not going to be able to make contact with the football, with my foot. Um, and I, I, I was so worried about it. In fact, I would, I would text, um, in the, in the early stages of my, um, of my research, I was texting Ben Carrington a lot about methodological issues and, and I would text him at like, like three o'clock every day. It's going to be the day I'm going to have to do the kickoff. I'm going to have to do the kickoff. And like, he stopped responding. He was like, I don't, I don't really want to hear this anymore, but I, I would be so nervous because I knew I was going to look like a fool. And I think that that's what is similar to, the boxing situation is that at some point I'm going to have to look the fool um, and I have to go with it because other people are, um, are showing me their vulnerabilities every day. And, um, and I was going to do it. It was like, you're, you're going to do it. You're going to do it. You're going to do it. And um, the day that I was going to do it, it rained Ugh. and, um, and I never did it. Wow. Yep. So I, I, I lived in, in a fairly substantial fear for about three weeks. That's amazing. And there was one coach who, who really, okay, tomorrow you're going to do it. Tomorrow you're going to do it. Um, and um, yeah. And then the day I, I was supposed to do it, it was raining. You know, you give us almost like a window there into like the softer side of hazing in a certain sense, right? <laughs> it's like that sense of humiliation though. I, I actually think you're getting, it's like you've been invited into the team in a certain sense and you actually have to prove at a certain point, it's like, if you really are a part of the team, if you really want to achieve the level yeah. of intimacy, that's important to your project, you actually have to make yourself vulnerable and likely be humiliated in front of this group. And that will make you one of us. Um, Absolutely. Now, kicking a football is a healthy enough form of hazing. I can, I can live with that. Um, right. Other forms, uh, not so much. Not so much. So I have one last story about that in the gym that was, that was, a, a, fa a fairly uncomfortable hazing. So um, in the gym, so there, there are a lot of people, one of my first interests in the gym were people who were recently being, who, who were released from prison and would come to the gym to create new identities after their time incarcerated. Um, and because there are people who have been in prison, people who are on parole, um, uh, people who have case active cases, uh, there, there would often be uh, either U.S. Marshals or bounty hunters who would come into the gym with a picture of somebody. And, you know, everybody said, no, never seen that person. Um, and so one day these uh, these uh, bounty hunters came in and showed a picture and uh, they came over to our my little area. And I said, no, you know, nope, nope never seen them. And, uh, and one of the trainers who I was working with said, um, the guys in the guys in he he's in the ring right in front of you. And I was like, Whoa. uh, and he said, and he's, he's, you made eye contact with him. He, he saw you look at that paper and he saw you look at him and now he thinks, you know, it's him. And I was, I, I was 
I was absolutely terrified. And he was like, you know, I just like would keep a low profile for a while. And it was, it was a Friday and I wasn't going to the gym on a Saturday. And <laughs> I, 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 I was, I was, I was the, like the definition of terrified. If I left my apartment, um, I like looked down the street. I was po- positive this person was on, on to me. And, um, and uh, I, I was married at the time. And, and I remember saying to my husband, like, you can't go out. You're not safe. I'm not safe. You're not safe. Like this is, he was like, what have you gotten yourself into? This is crazy. And, um, and I would say, no, this is like, we might have to go away for a while. I mean, I just, I really, like, I really thought this is not a great situation. So I went to the gym on Monday, you know, after, you know, it took me like an hour to get from the subway because I was like looking down every street and, um, and, and then I got to the gym, the gym and I finally said to this trainer, Mike, I said, you know, I'm beside myself. Um, you know, is there, is there anything that I can do so that I don't have to live like this? Because I can't leave my house. I'm, I can't sleep. I'm, 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 I'm worried that my husband's going to be targeted. Uh, you know, what do I do? And he was like, oh, I'm only kidding. <laughs> and it was, it was, it was, a, it was a weekend of just, of, of real, of, of, of real, of real worry. Um, and it was, you know, I think he wanted me to say, I'm scared. And I finally said, I'm scared. <laughs> and that was like his victory. Yeah. That was me saying, okay, I'm not going to try to prove that, you know, I'm not scared. Um, I'm actually going to acknowledge that I'm tremendously frightened. Totally. And there's the vulnerability. Absolutely. And there's the vulnerability and the intimacy. <laughs> exactly. Well, <laughs> Lucia Trimber, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for your time and for all oh, your insights. Thank you. It's it's really it's been really fun. Thank you so much for um, inviting me on, and um, yeah, I look forward to continue talking. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod. Check out our website at www.theendofsport.com. And if you're feeling particularly generous, please support the show through our Patreon, which can be found on our website. Until next time, friends. Mm-hmm.